Good evening. Uh, good evening, everyone, um, all of our dear music members. Uh, we are about to begin the winter collaborative wide meeting, but I'm sorry that I have to just take a moment to make an important and quite devastating announcement. Some of you may have heard today through the news and media channels that our good friend, our dear partner, and our leader in music, Brian Lane, has been diagnosed with advanced uh, cancer. This will come as a shock to many of us, uh, and we it's, it's really difficult to even can comprehend what Brian is uh, undergoing at the moment. Brian is actually uh, like the Brian that we know is, is joining us today. He's, he's here and he'll be taking part in the Q&A. And he's doing that from the hospital where he's actually undergoing chemotherapy. And he's doing that with humility, grace and immense strength. Uh, no doubt it's, it's, it's quite difficult to run this webinar today, uh, understanding this background news, but we will do our best. And I think Brian wants us to keep discussing all the work that we're doing in the state of music. And that's a testament to Brian. We will be reaching out to all our members tomorrow and uh, music will be setting up a fund, uh, which I hope you can support to help support Brian and his family through this difficult time. Um, we'll also be passing on the details of his caring bridge site so that you can provide, um, keep in touch with Brian and understand uh, how he's going on. I'm really sorry that I've had to m mention this on behalf of Brian to the collaborative today. We're all thinking about you, Brian. We're praying for you and we're, um, we're gonna be behind you all the way. So on that note, I I'd like to now um, get the collaborative wide meeting uh, started. Um, it's been pre-recorded. So um, the welcome note from me is now going to begin. Thank you. Good evening and welcome to another music webinar and the first one of 2021 and we welcome all our members to this uh, format which we hope you're getting a little bit more used to in the current climate. Today we have an exciting and uh, fun packed uh, lineup to get through and before we uh, discuss what our agenda is for today I'd like to just take a few moments to talk about some recent progress in the collaborative. Uh, Music Prostate has now enrolling patients for a, a randomized control trial called Genomics in Michigan to adjust outcomes in prostate cancer. Uh, Music Rocks uh, has partnered with the Urology Care Foundation to create a new patient video on kidney stones and neutral stents, and we hope to share that with you soon. Music Kidney have uh, conducted an exhaustive uh, process to understand uh, active surveillance for uh, patients with um, small renal mass, and some of that data will be presented in today's meeting. And finally, we have launched our outdoor music pilot program, uh, which I'll be speaking out uh, about shortly as well. A couple of papers from the music group recently. Uh, the Rocks team have published a paper on, on infection-related hospitalization after urethroscopy. The kidney group have 
published a neurology practice uh, on their quality of care measures for renal mass. And, and really an important paper that just came out last week uh, comes from uh, music uh, written by Greg Offenberg and led by Dr. Jim Peabody with effort from many of the music surgeons and members throughout the state. And this was published in JAMA Surgery and it looked at patient and surgeon specific variation in patient reported outcomes after radical prostatectomy. And it's a really signature paper from our group. And I want to congratulate all our members and all the authors on this uh, uh, fantastic study that was published. Um, it was announced last time and we uh, mentioned it by email, but we're sad to say that David Miller has stepped down as, in his role as music program director after nine years of leading the collaborative, but he'll still be involved in the group and has transitioned to the role of strategy advisor. Uh, we want to take a moment to thank David for his extraordinary vision and leadership of music. David uh, in, uh, has taken another role in the University of Michigan Health System and has recently been appointed as the president of the, the health system. So we want to congratulate David in his new role and wish him all the best. Regarding the music value-based reimbursement, this slide just provides uh, an up-to-date assessment of our current performance on two of the measures that we're being tracked for by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan on salvage radiation therapy and urethroscopy uh, imaging for stones. Regarding the salvage radiation therapy, we'll be coming back to you about this at the next meeting that we plan. And Dr. Dow will be speaking to us about the imaging um, initiative. And as you can see, there were currently under our performance targets, and we hope to be able to achieve that over the next six months. Three other additional measures have been approved by Blue Cross, and they include active surveillance follow-up, and Dr. Samergian will be telling us more about this shortly, ED visits after urethroscopy, and chest imaging for renal mass. And you can see here, we're close to some of these performance metrics, but again, we're gonna make a concerted efforts so that we can achieve these targets, because if we do, all music urologists will receive additional payments uh, from Blue Cross Blue Shield Michigan. And so we appreciate the support that Blue Cross has provided to us in this manner. On that note, towards the end of the meeting, we'll have a special um, uh, uh, note from Dr. Jim Grant, who is the new Chief Medical Officer and Senior Vice President of Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan. And now the outdoor music pilot has officially launched. I'm, I'm excited to say that there are two groups who are joining us, University of North Carolina Urology and Memphis Urology. And both of them will be doing uh, uh, focus projects on prostate cancer. Uh, UNC will be doing a project with us on prostate MRI, while the Memphis Urology Group will be doing a project with us on shared decision-making, uh, especially as it relates to health disparities. The goals of uh, outdoor music are to see if we can establish a reproducible, exportable model for urological care nationwide, and also to learn from this process so that it can improve and inform our ongoing data collection and reporting methods within music. Um, we're at the moment finalizing relevant data needs uh, with these two pilot sites, and we plan to initiate data collection uh, in the second quarter of this year. So welcome to these two groups uh, joining music, and we look forward to learning from them and, um, and for further success in the collaborative. 
So on to today's uh, meeting, we've got exciting talks. Um, we've got the prostate team speaking to us about confirmatory testing in active surveillance. And Dr. Samerjan will be telling us about which confirmatory test might be the best one to use. The ROCS team, uh, led by Casey Dow and uh, Mike Witt, who is one of our patient advocates, and Dr. Corman, will be speaking to us about the data that we see in music on imaging after kidney stone surgery. And this is tied to one of our value-based reimbursement metrics. And then the kidney team have a fantastic uh, talks lined up by Dr. Rogers, Dr. Patel, and then including our guest speaker, Dr. Pirarazio from Johns Hopkins, who's one of the world experts on surveillance for renal masses. So we have a fantastic um, lineup there and talks that I think are really gonna help us in music define how to do better uh, active surveillance. And this is an unmet need and we're really excited and thank the kidney team for this work. So on that note, I'd like to pass it on now to Dr. Samergian to speak to us about active um, surveillance confirmatory testing. And I also want to take a moment to congratulate and welcome Alice, who has now joined us in a leadership capacity as the co-director of the Prostate Programme. Thank you. And uh, over to you, Alice. Thank you, Dr. Ghani. I'm pleased to be here tonight to speak with you all about confirmatory testing for active surveillance in music. Most of you all are familiar with the active surveillance roadmap. Confirmatory testing is recommended during the consideration phase for active surveillance and is to be done within the first six months of diagnostic biopsy. The music recommended tests include prostate biopsy, uh, MRI, and genomic testing, or any combination of the three. The focus of this talk is to learn more about the way that confirmatory testing for active surveillance is used in the state of Michigan and to look specifically at the performance characteristics of all three types of tests. The goals of confirmatory testing are twofold. First, it helps to improve risk stratification. If a man has favorable risk prostate cancer at initial diagnosis, the confirmatory testing can reaffirm the appropriateness to pursue active surveillance. This can also serve to make some men more comfortable with the decision to pursue active surveillance as an initial management strategy. Additionally, confirmatory testing is ideally meant to pick out a cold higher risk prostate cancers and identify men who would best be suited uh, with treatment. Some of the early work in confirmatory testing within music has showed that one, active surveillance rates are higher in men who uh, get confirmatory testing, and two, men with reassuring confirmatory tests in general have less biopsy reclassification as well as transition to definitive treatment. Previously, we haven't looked at these outcomes for each test individually. That's some of the data that we'll be showing you tonight. An increase in the cohort size with more patients and longer follow-up have allowed us to examine risk reclassification and treatment decision on individual confirmatory tests. So this chart compares NCCN approved use and validated endpoints for all three genomic tests and prostate MRI. All tests are recommended for use in favorable risk patients. And these tests can also be used in higher risk categories, although that's outside the scope of this talk. These tests do differ in terms of validated endpoints and what groups they've been studied in. So Prolaris is validated for cancer-specific survival in men on active surveillance, Metastasis-free survival at 10 years if treated with radiation or radical prostatectomy. 
Oncotype DX is validated for cancer-specific survival and metastasis-free survival at 10 years, as well as the presence of adverse pathology at radical prostatectomy. And Decipher is validated for cancer-specific survival at 10 years, metastasis-free survival at five years, in the presence of grade group three or higher in men who are treated with either modality. And then finally, MRI has been most studied for detection of grade group two, grade group three or higher in men on active surveillance or those who are planning radical prostatectomy. So we're gonna discuss four main questions around the topic of confirmatory testing. One, how are we using confirmatory testing in music? Two, which confirmatory test best identifies early reclassification? Three, which confirmatory test best predicts definitive treatment? And we'll also examine pathological outcomes at radical prostatectomy. First, how are we using confirmatory testing in music? Before we get to that, we'd like to invite you all to participate in a poll about how you're using confirmatory testing in your practice. Uh, this should be viewable in the Hopin platform, so look to your right under poll. Uh, please take a few minutes to answer this and we'll go over the answers at the end of the uh, presentation. Favorable risk prostate cancer refers to all grade group one and low volume grade group two, which is cancer in three cores or less, or less than 50% core involvement. These are, these are the men who can be considered for active surveillance. Since 2012, the collaborative has steadily increased the rate of use of active surveillance among favorable risk men. Additionally, we've seen improved rates of confirmatory testing. By 2020, 63% of these men have confirmatory testing within six months of diagnosis. And although we've seen much growth, there's also more room for improvement here. So there's wide variability in the use of confirmatory testing across music. As you can see, roughly half the practices obtain confirmatory testing in less than 50% of patients who are considered. We seek to understand what the factors are that play into this difference and also provide some useful information in support of confirmatory testing. So the curves we showed two slides ago demonstrate that there's still almost 40% of patients with favorable risk disease that are not getting confirmatory testing before active surveillance. We looked at patient-related factors that influence the decision. Uh, men who have grade group two in their initial biopsy specimen, men who are younger in age, and men with a PSA less than 10 are more likely to be prescribed and also to complete confirmatory testing. These all make sense as we want to minimize the risk in younger men and those who we already know have grade group two disease. Additionally, men with a higher PSA are more likely to seek treatment initially. So when we're looking at the types of confirmatory tests that are being used in music, most urologists are recommending genomic testing or MRI. 
There are differences in utilization when comparing the men who have grade group one only and men with grade group two on initial diagnosis. Men undergo genomic testing more often for the grade group two group uh, versus grade group one. And MRI is used more in grade group one only relative to grade group two, although genomic testing is still performed slightly more than MRI in the grade group one group. So this trend is likely influencing some of the findings that we'll see later on. And then repeat biopsy within six months is seldom used in both groups. Okay, so which confirmatory test best identifies early reclassification? Here's a recap of what would be considered reassuring in each test type. So for repeat prostate biopsy, it's pathologic grade and volume remaining appropriate for active surveillance. For MRI, it's the absence of PIRADS 4 or 5 lesion. And for genomic testing, it's dependent on the test type. Uh, in Polaris, it's less than 3% probability of prostate cancer mortality. For oncotype DX, it's greater than 80% freedom from primary gleason pattern 4. And decipher score is a score less than 0 0.45. So we're looking at the percentage of men on active surveillance who do not have disease reclassification. Early risk for classification is defined as high volume grade group two or grade group three or higher on surveillance biopsy. When we're comparing men with a reassuring confirmatory test, and these are the, this is the green line, uh, compared to men with a non-reassuring confirmatory test in red, you can see a clear separation of the curves. After two years of diagnosis, 75% of men with reassuring tests do not have any reclassification as opposed to only 55% of men with a non-reassuring test. And the blue line represents men who had no confirmatory testing. And risk for classification is similar to those men as it is in the reassuring group, uh, which is most likely because of reasons that we mentioned previously, uh, specifically that men with grade group one are more likely to not undergo confirmatory testing. And we can feel relatively reassured about these men in the first place. When men have a reassuring MRI, again, that's a PIRADS one through three, they're significantly less likely to have risk reclassification. At two years, 79% of men with reassuring MRI remain free of reclassification, while only 51% of men who are in the non-reassuring MRI group do. When looking at genomics as confirmatory tests, reassuring versus non-reassuring genomic tests do not strongly correlate with reclassification. Okay, third, which confirmatory test best predicts definitive treatment? Men who have a reassuring confirmatory test, again, those are, that's the green line, uh, are more likely to remain on active surveillance longer than those with a non-reassuring test in red. By two years, 29% of men with a non-reassuring test will have transitioned to treatment, while only 15% of men with a reassuring test did. A reassuring MRI performs very well in this regard. With 9% of men transitioning to treatment within two years, if they have a reassuring MRI versus 23% if not. And genomic testing also performs well for this endpoint. Although the numbers are somewhat lower for men staying on active surveillance at two years, which again may speak to the higher number of men getting genomic testing for grade group two on initial biopsy. 
So finally, we're going to review the pathological outcomes at radical prostatectomy, including the presence of grade group three or higher and the presence of adverse pathology. So this graph is looking at men with grade group three or higher after prostatectomy. Men who had reassuring tests are less likely to be upgraded to primary pattern four at radical prostatectomy than men who had non-reassuring tests. Uh, that being said, we need to understand that these are patients who underwent radical prostatectomy despite reassuring or non-reassuring test results. Likely there's other factors that drove them to treatment. We can't clearly say what they are, but they may be something that make them more high risk, like a high PSA or family history or some other element that factored into the decision-making process. Keep in mind that all these men are starting with favorable risk prostate cancer. So even if a test is non-reassuring, we don't expect a huge difference in these numbers. Non-reassuring tests do not necessarily indicate higher risk at radical prostatectomy. Additionally, there are a number of men with higher volume three plus four who are not accounted for on this graph. Adverse pathology is defined as great group three or higher, extra prostatic extension, seminal vesicle invasion, or pathologic N1. And again, we see a difference between adverse pathology after radical prostatectomy between the reassuring and non-reassuring groups. However, keep in, in mind the same selection bias as this is a radical prostatectomy population. And all three tests perform similarly for the endpoint of grade group three or adverse pathology at radical prostatectomy. So our key takeaway points. One is that none of these currently available confirmatory tests perform the way that we want them to and need them to. And that's to identify only patients who have unfavorable disease. A reassuring test may help us feel a little bit more comfortable that the risk is low in pursuing active surveillance. However, non-reassuring test uh, does not exclude a patient from active surveillance. There are too many false positives uh, or non-reassuring confirmatory tests, although most men will do well on active surveillance. MRI does a better job of identifying early Gleason reclassification than genomic tests do. Amongst the genomic tests, there are variable pathologic endpoints, which we already discussed. These tests can be used in active surveillance, but it's important to understand and counsel with the understanding of the, the pathologic endpoint that it's been validated for. And both MRI and genomics perform well to identify men at higher risk for transitioning to treatment or having adverse pathology at the time of radical prostatectomy. So thank you so much for your attention. Uh, please stick around to hear further comments from our panel and get any questions answered. And don't forget to complete the poll if you have not done so already. Great, thank you, Dr. Samarjan, for a, for a great talk. It's always interesting to see the evolution of the uh, of the data that we collect uh, and really see it mature and see what kind of questions we can answer from it to understand what the potential benefit is of of confirmatory testing. I still think that there are uh, we have strides to make, um, and uh, I think that um, you know I'm I'm going to ask uh, any anybody uh, and hop in to submit any questions regarding um, a confirmatory testing in this presentation to the chat. We'll try to address as many of them as we can. Um, and I'll also like to introduce our panel members, uh, Dr. Samerjan, of course, who, uh, who is an esteemed colleague of mine who actually now serves as uh, the co-director of prostate cancer programs in music. So we welcome her. We welcome Dr. Block. 
uh, one of our patient advocates, so uh, thank you very much. Um, and also uh, Dr. Uh, Brad Rosenberg, um, uh, a, a urologist and urological oncologist, um, uh, and also uh, Dr. Kevin Ginsberg, uh, who, is, um, who is currently a, a urological oncology fellow at Fox Chase Cancer Center. Uh, and uh, I, have a, I have a funny feeling he's going to be back in Michigan soon uh, and help it and be in, being an integral part of, of, our, um, uh, of our music program. Uh, and also, finally, is someone who I, I work with very, very closely. Uh, this is uh, Diane Collins. She's a physician assistant who helps run the active surveillance program at Michigan Medicine. I would say probably at this point she sees more active su surveillance patients than, uh, than all of us on the panel combined. Uh, so her input is going to be really, really valuable. So I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Samarjan to see if she can uh, give us the results of that poll. I'm really curious to see uh, what, what the audience answers were. Sure, thank you. Yeah, so uh, it looks like we had about 35 people who participated in the poll, so thank you for doing that. Uh, first question was, do you believe that confirmatory testing is valuable? And 100% of voters said yes. Uh, and 94% said that they routinely use confirmatory testing in their practice. Um, so we'll hear a little bit more about that from our panel. And it looks like the, the optimal endpoint for confirmatory testing, uh, we were looking at grade group three or higher, adverse pathology, transition to treatment, uh, metastasis-free survival, and cancer-free survival. Um, and transition to treatment was the most important endpoint that most of the uh, urologists answered here. So um, that's great. That's all very helpful, useful information. So. Uh, Outside of patient preference, when when would someone not use confirmatory testing? Anyone, uh, Dr. Ginsburg, what about you? Do you ever not use confirmatory testing or recommend against it in a certain patient? Uh, I am a pretty big believer uh, in confirmatory testing. I think that there's a lot that you learn from both a reassuring and a non-reassuring result. So if I'm looking at a, a newly diagnosed favorable risk gentleman, I, and I'm truly considering active surveillance and not watchful waiting, I would recommend on, on all patients to get a confirmatory test because uh, I think we really learn something from either result. It may not be something that uh, is an absolute yes or no, whether or not they're appropriate for active surveillance because there's still a favorable risk gentleman, but it may help tip the scale one way or another. And like anything, knowledge is power. And I think the extra information is beneficial. Is that you, Dr. Rosenberg? Same question. Um, probably not. Um, I mean, I can't say there's no condition where I would, uh, you know, omit the confirmatory testing, but pretty much I do. I mean, again, um, not always exactly sure what you're dealing with. If it's a very old patient or a sicker patient, again, not as likely, but again, um, that's somebody you may not be doing necessarily surveillance on, but more uh, watchful waiting. So yeah, I would say, I think in, in our, you know, in this medical legal world, it's just good to have a confirmatory test to go by some guidelines to say, you know, and patients always like it too, to just say, you know, we're gonna get one more test to just make sure that uh, this is safe to do. And so I would almost always get some confirmatory tests, absolutely. 
Great, thank you. I think it's interesting that that there's kind of maybe with the with the with the poll the poll answers is a little bit of a disconnect. So we start to see that hundred percent of people think that it's useful. Maybe just amongst those who actually responded to the poll, certainly um, that uh, only six percent don't routinely use confirmatory testing. Uh, however, when we look at the confirmatory te testing rates in music, uh, it's around what fifty eight percent. Uh, around, hovering around there, so it seems like um, it seems like there may be some some uh, some providers who maybe don't don't necessarily uh, find a huge amount of value in it uh, in every in in every circumstance. And Dr. Rosenberg, you mentioned an interesting uh, interesting uh, concept is is that patients like the idea of confirmatory testing, and so I'd like to ask Diane, Diane, what you know when you're talking to you know men has have a diagnosis, they end up having, you know, maybe it's a prostate MRI, oftentimes in, in our practice. Um, what, how, what is their acceptance of confirmatory testing? Do they feel like, you know, do they feel reassured by it? Do they understand the concept of confirmatory testing? Is it something that can be explained easily? Um, and, and then also, you know, oftentimes, especially with MRI, uh, a, a non, quote unquote, non-reassuring confirmatory test, which shows a lesion is gonna really warrant another biopsy. Um, and really, no man wants to have another biopsy. What, what, what? How do you know? How, what, what are your sense for when when you counsel patients on this? Do they feel that they're happy to move forward with that? Yes. So the patients are very happy to move forward. They're very happy with new technology that we can use, so that we're not just doing a random biopsy. They appreciate the targeted biopsy. I think that the the big thing is to go in and educate the patients about why this is important. And nothing's one hundred percent, but certainly this gives us a better feel for what's going on. And and I think also, you know, when you have someone who who has a biopsy and you do the MRI and the MRI is negative, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have to have a biopsy at six months, and they appreciate that. Great, great. Thank you. Okay. Uh, can everyone hear me better? All right. So we have an excellent question from Dr. Lane, um, and that's: Can someone comment about watchful waiting? Do you tell a patient that they're on watchful waiting, or how do you communicate to these patients that likely don't need confirmatory testing? Do you bring it up that you're omitting it? Um, so anyone? Dr. George, what about you? What do you do? You tell people the difference between active surveillance and watchful waiting. I do. I try my best to. It's a difficult conversation for you to, you know, to be able to accept yourself uh, to be able to help communicate that. Um, and it seems, you know, you're basically putting a a life expectancy, you know, on on a on a patient. And even though uh, it can be very real. Uh, in, in, in men who have significant comorbidities, we do everything we can in our mind to be able to provide the benefit of the doubt. Uh, and when we do that, we potentially subject men to additional testing where there is going to be limited or, no, uh, limited or no benefit. So I try to be as frank as possible. I say, listen, I'm not trying to be morbid about it, but the, statistically speaking, all men, they're more likely to pass of cardiovascular disease, stroke, heart attack, uh, uh, something like that. And so, the, and I say that the older that you get, the benefit of testing decreases. And so what we want to do is to limit our, uh, our testing um, to, to really only do it when we absolutely need it. And, and I would say that most men are, are very accepting of that. Uh, and I, I feel like more of the, the internal struggle comes with myself rather than the actual patients. They're, they're, they're more than willing to accept that. They're fine saying I don't need any more biopsies. Yeah, I've, I've had a very similar uh, experience as well. I, I typically find that the gentlemen that are older and, and sicker and are really 
the watchful waiting gentlemen kind of know that they're older and sicker and they kind of realize that. Um, I've also found that the Memorial Sloan Kettering life expectancy calculator can be a very helpful tool as well. They can show kind of 10, 15 year untreated prostate cancer mortality showing, you know, two, 3% compared to their other cause mortality of 95, 96, 97%. And it can also uh, help move the needle a little bit there for some men. I think I think you meant the music uh, life expectancy calculator, but that's fine, Kevin. That's okay. No, I'm just kidding. The Memorial Sloan Kettering one is great as well. Sorry, uh, Alice, did you have a question for Dr. Block? I do. Um, yes. Yeah, so, Dr. Block, as a patient, what is the the most important endpoint? What do you want a confirmatory test to tell you? Hi. Uh, well, I'm a pediatrician, uh, and uh, about seven years ago, I was diagnosed with uh, prostate cancer. And um, at the time, uh, it, it seems almost eons ago in terms of your practice and standard of care, because at the time I was, I was almost rushed to uh, radical prostatectomy and was very grateful to uh, undergo uh, active surveillance. Um, and uh, we did a uh, MRI within uh, two months, um, and uh, that was uh, that was uh, reassuring. So, I'm sorry. Did I answer your question? Yes. Yeah, that was helpful. Um, what do you think about the data that was presented? Was there anything that stood out to you? Um, it seems to jive with my experience. Now, do you? Now, the, the, the need for biopsies on, on active surveillance, um, it's, it's, you know, from, from my perspective, it's very easy. Hey, you need a prostate biopsy, but I'm not the one who's having a prostate biopsy. Uh, so what, it, you know, uh, in terms of the frequency of biopsies, uh, how, how, do you feel, how do you feel about that? Do you feel like that, uh, that it's a necessary evil? Do you feel like if you can extend it as far out, you know, what's your, everybody has their own individual risk tolerances. You know, how does that stack up for yourself? Yeah, the, the biopsy was uh, was something else. It was uh, it was an experience. Uh, I'm I I, I uh, was fortunate to have uh, MRI, which uh, you know showed no um, uh, worrisome lesions, and I've had an MRI uh, uh, ever since. This was six years ago, um, or seven years ago now. Uh, once every uh, year and a half or so shows has showed no changes and I've been comfortable with that and I've been grateful that we haven't had another biopsy since although we we talk about it often uh, you know when there might be a time when I need another well thank you for your perspective okay so we're going to transition over to the rock segment of this so Dr. Dow take it away thank you everybody Thanks, Alice, uh, and thanks first and foremost to everybody who's participating in the webinar tonight, this evening. Uh, my name is Casey Dow. Um, I am the director of our Music Rocks Initiative, and what I'm going to be discussing with you tonight is imaging after kidney stone surgery, where we are and where we're going. So our goal within Michigan, or excuse me, within uh, Music Rocks is to make Michigan the best place in the world for ureteroscopy through continuous quality improvement using the PDCA cycle or plan, do, check, act. We've been traveling this road towards improving post-ureteroscopy outcomes, namely by working in the preoperative space, engaging patients via patient education, in the surgical arena through several means, 
namely around appropriateness of stent placement and understanding stent placement's impact on, on uh, outcomes. And then finally, working on the post-operative space by rolling out Music Rocks Pro, which is our patient re reported outcomes platform, all of which are coalescing together to hopefully improve outcomes after your reteroscopy. Tonight, what we're gonna be talking about is why post-ureteroscopy imaging is important. And I think if I were to put this as simply as possible, post-ureteroscopy imaging is important because it provides good quality care. If we were to break that down a bit, I think that most would agree that knowing our outcomes is vitally important after ureteroscopy, both for us as physicians to understand stone-free rates as well as patients so they can plan for future treatment if it's needed. Residual fragments after ureteroscopy are important because we know from several studies that there is really no such thing as a clinically insignificant residual fragment. Stones that are left behind have the potential to regrow, which might require further treatment, further pain and suffering for patients, and downstream healthcare encounters. And then finally, post-ureteroscopy obstruction can occur and in some cases can be silent or unrecognized, and this has potentially dire consequences. It's also important to us in the state of Michigan because one of our population-based performance measures or VBR measures is post-ureteroscopy imaging for kidney stones. Our current rate of post-ureteroscopy imaging defined as CT ultrasound or KUB within 60 days of surgery is 40%. And our target rate to achieve the VBR measure is 45%. And that measurement period runs from July, 2020 to June, 2021. So what you see here is our post-ureteroscopy imaging rates by practice. And you can see our music average of 40%. What I'd like to turn your attention to is the substantial variation in post-ureteroscopy imaging by practice. There are practices that are imaging as few as 11% of patients after surgery to as high as 96% of patients after surgery. So this tremendous variation su suggests some differences in the way that we perceive the utility of imaging. So as a thought exercise, we thought about why do we see such variation? And I'm going to offer four hypotheses. And please, if there are some that I'm not touching on, enter these in the chat, and we'll hope to touch on them in our first discussion. So the first potential reason for this variation might be practice-related. We thought it might be useful to provide a counterfactual. So if we look now at shockwave lithotripsy postoperative imaging rates, I think we see a different story. If this were purely a practice-based phenomenon, we would expect there to be high variability in post-shockwave imaging rates. But indeed, what we see is that overall, we're imaging just shy of three quarters of patients, almost twice what we do for ureteroscopy, and there's much less variation across practices. If we were to break this down further, one might want to understand if high-performing practices are high-performing for both imaging types. We see that to an extent. So what we're plotting here is post-shockwave imaging and post-URS imaging by practice on the same chart. On the right side of the screen, you see practices that seem to do well with both. So they're imaging in excess of 80% of shockwave and URS patients. But the story gets a bit muddy in the middle of the graph. You can see practices that are doing a tremendous job imaging after shockwave lithotripsy, but might be imaging less than 50, and in some cases, less than 25% of patients after ureteroscopy. So clearly, it's not just a practice-based phenomenon if we've got our act together around shockwave lithotripsy imaging. We see no obvious correlation in our imaging patterns based on practice. Another potential hypothesis is that this is related to clinical factors. We all understand that certain case characteristics may lend themselves 
to imaging patterns after your ureteroscopy. So if we took two big uh, clinical characteristics, namely stone size and stone location, and see if they have an impact on imaging rates, we see that though there appears on the left side of the graph, which is plotting stone size in five millimeter increments against imaging rate, there might be a slight signal that increasing stone size is related to more imaging. This difference was not statistically significant. And if we look at stone location, namely renal versus ureteral versus stones in both locations, it doesn't appear that it really impacts our imaging utilization. So from this chart, it doesn't appear that there's any obvious clinical correlation in our post-ureteroscopy imaging patterns. To offer a third hypothesis, one could suggest that it might be because of outcomes. If we believe that ureteroscopy is fundamentally a more successful or uniformly successful procedure for patients, what's the point in imaging afterwards if all of our patients are going to be stone-free? What I'm presenting here is our overall ureteroscopy stone-free rates in Music Rocks. And what you can see is if we look at the registry from 2016 to present and look at all comers, our stone-free rate is 60% in the registry. This is defined as no residual stones on CT, KUB, or ultrasound 60 days after surgery. Now we can split hairs here and say that there might be such thing as a clinically insignificant fragment, that being a small fragment that might not cause the patient problems. But I think I highlighted earlier that studies would suggest that this concept is becoming increasingly less common as a visible entity within our, within our urologic community. If we were to break this down, we certainly see that ureteral stones fare a bit better. Our stone-free rate is 71% and renal stones are 48%. But overall, uh, if we're basing our lack of imaging purely on the fact that we do such a great job, our stone-free rate is 60%. Now, I don't mean to be a complete downer. If we look at national data uh, from this editorial written by Dr. Peggy Pearl, who's going to be one of our content experts in the forthcoming skills workshop, she cited that the recent literature suggests that at centers of excellence for kidney stones, these are the best of the best academic centers, stone-free rates approximate 50 to 70%. So when she asked the question in the editorial title, is ureteroscopy as good as we think? I think the answer was a resounding no. So having discussed uh, the importance of post-ureteroscopy imaging and suggesting some possible hypotheses, we're gonna transition uh, to two speakers. Mike Witt is a patient advocate uh, who himself has suffered from kidney stones and is going to offer some unique perspectives on the importance of post-operative imaging in his particular case. And then a man that really needs no introduction in the state of Michigan, Dr. Howard Corman, who serves as the president of Comprehensive Urology, one of our largest multi-specialty group practices, is going to provide some uh, context, understanding he's leading a large group where there might be tremendous variation in post-ureteroscopy imaging. Thank you, Dr. Dow. Hello, everyone. As Dr. Dow mentioned, my name is Mike Witt, and I'm a ROCKS patient advocate. Experience with a kidney stone happened while I was on vacation a couple years ago. I've always been in excellent health, so it was a big surprise when I was hit with this excruciating pain. After the onset of my pain, uh, my very capable wife drove me to the closest hospital, which happened to be about a 10-minute drive. We checked into the emergency room and we saw a nurse after about 15 minutes and then the doctor on staff after approximately 30 minutes. At this point, the pain in my left side, the lower back was so severe that I had a constant feeling of nausea and really not knowing if I could walk. And in fact, I do recall leaving the automobile and kind of pulling myself across the parking lot 
uh, in order to get into the emergency room at the time. As it relates to imaging, um, I do recall having some imaging done just prior to the doctor moving me into a room where I was housed for approximately the next 36 hours. Of course, the purpose of that was the doctor said, hey, we really want you to try to pass the stone, lots of liquids. Um, if we can avoid doing any type of surgical procedure, uh, we would like to avoid doing that. Of course, I agreed to that and, and tried, but it was after about 36 hours that I, um, for all intents and purposes, I cried uncle and said, hey, if there's something else that we can do. And, uh, and the doctor um, went in and removed the kidney stone. Uh, in that the process of the removal of the kidney stone, uh, a, a urinal stent was put into place. And the purpose of the stent was not explained to me, but um, like everything I do in life, I attempted to educate myself. Um, there was no discussion between myself, my wife, and the doctor on post-op imaging, but I did, again, attempt to educate myself as to the purpose of the stent. Um, based on the complications that I experienced in the days that followed, um, I'm really shocked that the current rate of post-op imaging here in Michigan is only about 40%. Um, as a patient, I really think it's important for us to know outcomes and if the treatment was successful and if any residual, for example, a stone or portions of a stone left behind uh, dictated further follow-up. Had I been educated properly initially and received imaging at the appropriate time, much of my anxiety and discomfort, I think, would have been avoided. As I've come to learn, the idea behind imaging is to know if the surgery solved the problem and if anything else needs to happen, whether that would be a repeat procedure or additional imaging would need to happen. I think it's important for patients to be empowered to advocate for themselves. Knowing what I know now, I believe any means to connect with patients in the preoperative setting to educate on aspects of their care, especially around imaging, is crucial and it's worthwhile so they can confidently advocate on their own behalf. So thank you all for this opportunity to share my story. As a patient advocate, it's important for me to do everything in my power to help those like you who are committed to providing the best and the most advanced health care to the citizens of the state of Michigan. Thank you, Casey. I appreciate the opportunity to discuss a private practice viewpoint of postoperative imaging and whether it's appropriate after your reteroscopy. Certainly all of us in practice are aware of the things that we think about as complications post-ureteroscopy, including stricture rates, which are about 1%, and silent obstruction, which can be as anywhere from a 1% to 4% range, and obviously confer significant sequelae for a patient long-term. But I think the biggest goal as we look at music and coordinating with other music studies that we've done in the past is looking at preventing emergency room visits. Because if we can cut down emergency room visits and emergency stents, we can cut down unnecessary procedures, and maybe that's where our big money savings we're going to, are going to come from. I think in general, stone persistence is underestimated by urologists. Casey presented numbers about 52% stone-free rates after ureteroscopy for all, coming, all comers. I think that in my practice, it's ranged from 60 to 90% from the viewpoint of the urologist. Um, some of them gave more specific explanations with CT scans, picking up more fragments and renal stones and larger stones, picking up more fragments. But it, in general, I think that urologists tend to think that more patients are stone-free than really are. 
I think what it comes down to at the end will be that whether the cost of the imaging will be less than the cost of the care for the patients not imaging. So if we save on the ER visits, will we come out ahead? And I think that by studying this information, this is very music-like. It's something that we've done before with CT scans and bone scans for prostate cancer. We've done it with chest imaging for renal cell carcinoma. And I think we're going to come out with stratified needs and recommendations similar to those. So imaging may be indicated only for complicated cases with larger stones and access sheaths and, re and renal stones. And we may omit them for a simple three millimeter uncomplicated stone basketing, often without a stent. In terms of how do we increase our compliance with BB the BBR measure, education on physician of physicians is kind of the most important thing. One is for them to understand the underreporting of retained fragments. And if we have this data to give to our docs, I think it, people will buy into it more. Second of all, they need to see the financial benefits, both in terms of the VBR stipend that we get from Blue Cross, as well as the fact that you're getting reimbursed for intra-office ultrasound. So that should be appealing to private practice doctors. And the low-risk nature of renal ultrasound, there's not a big risk to the person other than driving in and getting a test done these days during COVID. In terms of um, other ways to improve our VBR compliance, I'm really working through office workflow. It's uh, important to uh, work on scheduling by the surgical schedulers. They're gonna call and confirm with the doctors to make sure the case was actually done and then order the test. This eliminates the step where the doctor has to tell the patient to order it and the patient has to call and order it. So it makes sure that there's a backup that it really happens. It helps obviously if the doctors reinforce the behavior. We're also increasing the availability of ultrasound in the office. All these changes are much easier to do in a small group with three or four doctors where you can pass the message and everyone gets it. In a larger office, it's more like paying, playing telephone operator. You have to go through the doctors, all the various staffs, the different workflows in each office. So it's obviously more um, complicated in a big lug plug group, but we seem to be getting a, a handle on it. So we're looking here at our comprehensive urology data. In green are the 2020 imaging rates and in blue are the 2019 rates. Almost across the board, we're doing a better job in 2020 than 2019, but still haven't hit threshold as we're still at a 20% compliance rate in 2019 and up to 35% compliance in 2020. This is before we did the scheduling efforts in the office and the uh, having the surgical schedulers doing the scheduling of the procedures, and then also informing the doctors. Also, if you look at the data here, it includes a lot of our music urologists who actually come to the meetings, and there's definitely a proportion of doctors that are ordering the ultrasounds more reliably if they come to the actual music meetings. So all this being said, uh, CU does pledge to get us to over the 45% threshold, which is very important because a lot of the patients in the music uh, group are from our group. And with that, we'll move on to the discussion. Thank you. Hi there, everybody. Um, thanks again for uh, attending the meeting tonight. Uh, we're going to uh, go ahead now with some live discussion. So the first person I wanted to engage was Mike Witt. Again, um, much of the power that we have within music is the engagement of our patients. Uh, Mike uh, has become a close friend throughout this process. Uh, Mike, my question to you is what is your, your story is obviously unique. Every patient's story is unique. What is your take on what you've heard today from us? Uh, as well as, as as the importance in your mind of post-operative imaging and how patients can be empowered to to request that or be a part of that decision making. 
Um, yeah, th thank you, Casey. Uh, there's a number of things I, I, I could comment on, but I want to highlight two. Um, one is you mentioned earlier this uh, plan do check back cycle. And um, I know the, the, the medical field, I'm glad this is something you practice because in the manufacturing field uh, where I operate, this is something that we do as well. Um, and it's something that ensures uh, that we're always focused on what is most important and that we're doing that, again, the plan checked act. Uh, plan to check act in a way that ensures that our quality is um, is of utmost importance and something that we continue to keep in the forefront of our minds. And so um, recognizing that is something that you said earlier, I wanted to underscore uh, the importance of it as it relates to the imaging. And if, if patients are interested in getting uh, imaging after uh, this type of procedure, um, you know, what, the statistic that I've learned um, that I think is alarming is based on the complications that occurred during my experience. I'm really shocked that the current rate is only 40%. Uh, because as a patient, in, in my mind, it's really important for us to know the outcomes. And if there is a tool, if there's a mechanism by which you know myself working with uh, the doctors that are uh, taking care of me, if, if if there's a way that we can have some questions answered. Um, then, then I certainly want to go down that path as a patient. And if that treatment is successful or if anything uh, residual is left behind uh, that would require further follow-up, that's, uh, that's a question that I would certainly want answered. So um, a, a resounding yes, there's a, uh, I think there's a better opportunity for patients uh, to express that they might have an interest in this. And of course, there has to be uh, the education of the patient uh, that that is indeed is an option. And so well, that um, dovetails, oh, sorry, um, that dovetails really nicely into our one of the comments that we got um, uh, from Dr. El Tahawi. He mentioned how often or do we have data on how commonly we find positive findings on on imaging? And I think what you might be getting at uh, will be addressed in the second half of the talk. So that's an excellent question. But just as far as residual stone rates, uh, we do find that about 40 percent of patients have residual stones. Um, but I can maybe answer the second part of your question in the second half of the talk when we begin to discuss our hydronephrosis data. Um, we also got a great comment um, from uh, Michael Kosminski uh, in Grand Rapids indicating that one of the areas he saw in his own practice, you know, getting at the grassroots aspect of this is that uh, KUB is often a walk-in test. It is at Michigan Medicine as well in many places, whereas ultrasound is scheduled, which might explain some of the disparity. And, and kind of then pivoting to Howard, um, again, uh, we've got the president here from Comprehensive taking the time out tonight. But what was really impactful to me is that you've shown a 15% absolute increase just by engaging your physician. So that, again, speaks to the, the power of music. But in the last minute and a half that we have, could you tell me about how you could get around some of these scheduling issues that Michael brought up um, so, so um, uh, astutely. Uh, really, it's anytime you're dealing with mass movement and shepherding doctors and changing behavior patterns, it just takes persistence. And you really have to go door to door on this. And you have to talk to everybody personally and make sure that they have a personal stake in it. So whether it's meetings with the back office, explaining to the back office people why it's important, whether it's going to each doctor and explaining to each doctor why it's important. And then also with, uh, as Mike brings up with the patients, the patients, you might think they think it's important, but they also are not eager to have another test. They don't feel like coming in a second time. Certainly in COVID, all this is magnified. So I'm actually pleased that our numbers went up despite COVID happening. So um, I think it's all about behavior modification and it really applies to our lives at home. It applies to parenting it applies to doctoring and it applies to running a business. So I think it, it's about communication from top to bottom. What are your priorities and what's your messaging? 
Uh, I mean, and Casey, thank you. And Howard, I, I, I hadn't seen that slide before. That's amazing. I mean, you've shown an increase in imaging rates, not, you know, not across the board, but that is the work that you've done. So if you guys, a big, large, complex group can do that, anyone can do that. Yeah, well, well said. And I think it, it gets back to the point that you mentioned earlier, which is we all take this to heart at our own individual practices. But, you know, uh, us sitting in the coordinating center sometimes, you know, question how hard it's going to be to move a large group like a comprehensive or, or, or a Michigan neurologic uh, and, and, and or MIU. And to see that you can do that just with what you said, kind of back office conversations is incredibly encouraging. Just in the last second that we have here, before we transition back to the second half of the talk, Adam Walker from West Shore Urology had a question regarding uh, any evidence that the concept of dusting, that is kind of meticulously fragmenting stones such that they can pass through versus basket extraction, a hot button item we're going to have for our skills workshop with, with the venerable Dr. Ghani and Dr. Pearl. Is there any evidence that that leads to more residual fragments? You know, Kirsch is a better uh, uh, a spokesman for this than I am, but my sense is that probably not. I think the two treatments are relatively equivalent. Um, they've been studied in a couple randomized controlled trials, and I would argue that there's probably not so much of a clinically significant difference. Do you have a comment on that, Dr. Ghani? Oof. Uh, so the, if you look very hard at the data, just CT outcomes for kidney stone surgery, kidney stone, not ureter, whether you dust or you fragment, the average rates are 50 to 60%, like what, what uh, Casey showed on that side. So I, I think if you dust badly or you fragment badly, you will have residual fragments. It's about the quality of the surgery, no matter what technique you use. So I think all of us need just to be a bit more mindful of that. And that's the plan for next week's webinar, where we're going to go through some of this in more detail. Thanks a lot, Kershid. So uh, as we're going into the second half of the talk, please post anything on, on the chat. If you'd like questions addressed or you have comments, that's what really drives the fun here. And uh, we're going to move on now to the second half of the Rocks talk. So thanks to everybody who participated in the chat. I think that was a great discussion. What we're going to talk about now is our final hypothesis and why we think we see variation in post-ureteroscopy imaging. And that could be the concept of safety. You remember we kind of anchored our importance of post-ureteroscopy imaging on three things, knowing outcomes, understanding regrowth has, has consequences, and then finally obstruction. So obstruction is something that I think I need to tell you a brief story about. When we initially presented the idea of using post-ureteroscopy imaging as a VBR measure to the executive committee, it was met with some resistance, primarily because we weren't collecting any data on the presence of post-operative hydronephrosis in the registry at that time. So based on some feedback that we got, we began collecting this data field, again, the presence of post-ureteroscopy hydronephrosis as of January 2020. And I'm going to be presenting that data to you now. I think it's first important, though, to understand what we know. And so from the national literature, we know that silent obstruction, which is defined as hydronephrosis after ureteroscopy, that is unrecognized by the patient due to lack of symptoms, occurs in up to 4% of people. This fear, or this fact, I should say, largely informed a clinical effectiveness protocol to guide our use of imaging after ureteroscopy that was put forth by the AUA. And this, this really not even a guideline, this protocol stated that post-ureteroscopy imaging is warranted to document clearance, resolution, or unanticipated obstruction after surgery. But really, the guidance was to perform imaging in all people uh, because there was fear of missing that one person who might have silent obstruction. 
So the next two slides are going to really present what we've found as we've begun to collect this data point. If we look at all ureteroscopy patients who had both a preoperative and a postoperative CT or an ultrasound, right, a study that can assess for hydronephrosis, over the course of the last year since we began collecting this data, we found 829 patients. Of those, 16% had some degree of postoperative hydronephrosis. Now, it's important to understand whether that was recognized or not. And to understand that, we used one of our outcomes of emergency department visits. So of that 16%, 40% presented to an emergency department in the postoperative time period for symptoms such as pain or obstruction. But that leaves 60% of patients that were never encountered by the healthcare system, which leads to an overall asymptomatic hydronephrosis rate of 9.6%. Now, understand that this is a highly selected cohort of patients. We don't image everybody. We've already talked about that. And these are the highly selected patients who had both a CT or ultrasound pre and postoperatively. So it's a highly selected cohort of patients. And we're beginning to understand these data. But if you take it at face value, some of the numbers that we had resistance in believing of 4% presented in the national data, we're now seeing more than double that in our initial foray into this data field within the Music Rocks registry. But I know what some people are saying, and it's a valid criticism of this slide, and that is that we're not selecting patients who didn't have hydronephrosis preoperatively. That is to say, if someone comes in with an obstructing ureteral stone, has obstruction and hydronephrosis, undergoes ureteroscopy, it could take some time for that hydronephrosis or dilation to resolve after surgery. And so we might be capturing that erroneously in this chart here. So what I present to you now is a similar schema, but this is a much cleaner cohort of patients. These are again, ureteroscopy patients who had a pre or postoperative CT or ultrasound, but had no hydronephrosis preoperatively. We still find that after surgery, 15% have new postoperative hydronephrosis. And if we follow the same scheme we did in the prior slide, more than half never seek medical attention, leading to an asymptomatic hydronephrosis rate of 8.2%. Again, more than double the rate reported in the national literature. We've done some preliminary analyses to understand what factors might be associated with this hydronephrosis. Again, understand this is a limited cohort of patients and our goal is to continue to build on this. But we found that females, those with stones in a renal location, and those who did not receive any perioperative alpha blockers, that being pre or postoperatively, had higher chances of having post-ureteroscopy hydronephrosis. And if we think of our overarching goals, which is to decrease unplanned healthcare encounters after ureteroscopy, we know very clearly that those who have post-ureteroscopy hydronephrosis do have a higher rate of unplanned healthcare utilization than the general population. So this is something that we need to continue to monitor as we move towards our quality improvement goals. So let's circle back for a second to where we are currently. What we have put forth by the AUA is a clinical effectiveness protocol that dictates our imaging practices after ureteroscopy. But this is by no means perfect. This guideline or clinical protocol does not include renal stones, and certainly we're treating many renal stones within music. It doesn't contain high-quality data. The authors say as much. It's certainly not clear. I challenge you to look at the flowcharts that are embedded within this protocol. And then finally, the authors mention in their final statements that it's certainly not cost-effective to image everybody, but at least ultrasound, their, their stance is is non-ionizing radiation, and we don't want to miss patients with asymptomatic hydronephrosis. So I'd like to propose where we could be going within music. 
we have this wonderful registry full of high quality data uh, put for, put in by our, our trained abstractors. I think we could all agree that two factors that would be important from the outset if we were to design the perfect guideline for imaging would be to identify those who have posterioroscopy hydro because it's important and certainly identify those who are not stone free after surgery. If we start with those two outcome measures, could we travel a road towards creating a guideline that takes those into account that's a more common sense, cost-effective, widely accepted guideline within music? Think imaging with low-risk prostate cancer. We've tackled that already. But we must acknowledge that along the way, if we're to move towards this noble goal, there will be roadblocks along the way. As I said earlier, we're only imaging 40% of people at baseline, so our data here is limited. And only a third of those patients are getting a CT or an ultrasound, which can assess for hydronephrosis. But I want to try to end on a high note. I think that people are recognizing the high quality work that we're doing here in the state of Michigan in prostate disease, kidney cancer, and in kidney stones. We wrote a paper in the last year looking at our imaging rates after ureteroscopy, and Dr. Pearl who's a widely recognized expert, was part of writing the clinical effectiveness protocol, had this really nice editorial, and I'll read here. She says, as surgeons, we have the responsibility to assess the outcomes of our commonly performed surgical procedures. By identifying the scope of the problem, the Music Rocks Initiative raises awareness and offers the potential to implement a strategy to improve adherence to the recommended imaging protocol after ureteroscopy. I would argue that in the absence of good guidelines, we within music can lead from the front and create a better guideline. And I think experts are recognizing the potential that we have when we work together as a unified force. So here's what we're doing so far to increase post-ureteroscopy imaging. Many of your practices have participated in our local QI efforts, so-called these grassroots initiatives questionnaires. 30 of 32 practices have completed these. Understanding quality improvement is local. There may be unique aspects of your individual practices that are driving your imaging patterns. We're also engaging patients. Uh, we've created this imaging resource, it's hot off the presses, the goal being to empower patients and help them understand why imaging is important after surgery and how it, knowing their outcomes can dictate care. And then finally, as you know, we are constantly providing feedback to music physicians, both through the implementation and dissemination site visits, as well as your report cards that you get at the triannual meetings, which are reporting surgeon level, practice level, and music-wide rates of imaging. So please review these. So I guess the final question is, how do we move forward? What we've discussed today is that post-ureteroscopy imaging is good quality care. I don't think anyone on this webinar would disagree that we as urologists need to know our outcomes. Currently, stone-free rates in Michigan stand at about 60% after ureteroscopy, and emerging data, which is relatively new, suggests that our asymptomatic hydronephrosis rate is between 8 and 9%, which more than doubles the national average. It's also important that we achieve our VBR measure. Our current rate of 40% needs to increase to 45% by June 2021 to achieve this goal. And finally, I think in a more noble note, if we can image more and consider studies like ultrasound, which offer no radiation ability to assess for hydronephrosis, we may be able to better inform guideline creation and move from imaging for all to imaging to the select few that are, that are likely to benefit the most from it. So again, thanks to everybody in attendance and thanks for listening. We're gonna move into another live discussion.
back again. Uh, um, we're going to try to get to anybody's questions he's posted on the side. The first question I, I guess I would have is um, uh, for those of you who have not met him, John DiBianco is uh, currently one of the uh, clinical and research endourology fellows at Michigan. And I guess my question to you, John, is we talked about the clinical effectiveness protocol um, that guides some of our treatment decisions in ureteroscopy. Are there any other widely accepted guidelines out there um, regarding post-URS imaging? Thank you, Casey. Um, so the European uh, Association of Urology, the EAU, has guidelines that specifically states getting imaging post any intervention. Um, but all their data and the reason that they make that strong statement is based off residual fragments, looking for residual fragments. So they don't mention postoperative hydronephrosis or stricture formation or silent hydro as a uh, reason to get the imaging. But they specified that at four weeks is typically what would be recommended. Okay. Um, so I guess a question posed to you, Dr. Corman, and, and I actually got this feedback um, both at the executive committee meeting a year ago, and we proposed this as a VBR, that being the imaging after ureteroscopy, and then also from some of the urologists. You know, we, we gave data, admittedly not perfect, that says that our postoperative silent hydronephrosis rate or asymptomatic hydro rate is double potentially what the literature says. And so the fact remains, if you wanted to play devil's advocate, you know, why aren't we seeing a bunch of dead kidneys around uh, when we're imaging people? And, and do you have any sense for that? What, what's your practice tell you? Well, that's, that was my whole question. My whole skepticism about the VBR measure from the beginning is that, you know, I've been in practice 25 years and I certainly never had a lawsuit over a, a dead kidney and I don't see it very often. And I think if you go around and ask people, have you ever had a dead kidney? Have you ever had a lost kidney? People would not really realize it's there. So the question is obviously the clinical relevance and can you prove it? Does it last long enough? Look at ESWL with the diabetes, hypertension, all this stuff coming 20 years later, pretty soon they're going to say it causes Alzheimer's, you know? So there's always something new that we have coming up down the road that we didn't anticipate. So just because we don't think it's a problem doesn't mean it's not a problem. You know, I always say in my practice, just because things are running well, doesn't mean they're running well. You know, if you look beneath what you're looking at, you'll find problems. And that's, kind of the interesting angle of the music collaborative where we look at these things and take a really honest look without the bravado because it's anonymous data and we can look at things in an impartial way and say you know what is the real data we're dealing with as opposed to what do i feel my data is for me to thump my chest yeah okay and, and if i can just add to that you know and based on what mike said in the prior discussion casey if we I'd like to hear from music urologists. If we had kidney stone surgery, Howard, if you had a kidney stone surgery, wouldn't you want some scan afterwards as a checkup, x-ray scan? I'll ask that to you, Howard, you know? Yes, yeah. <laughs> I would give so, it. And I, and I bet head. every single member in our group will say yes. I, so, I'll go so far as saying I would get a CAT scan. <laughs> yeah. so. Actually, me too. I'd like a low-dose CT because Casey Dow will have done my operation and done it badly and left a bunch of stones behind. So definitely. And, you know, yeah. but absolutely. But we have to be judicious. We're not asking for 100% imaging. What, what's the target, Casey? It's 45. 45%. It's, you know... And so I think we can do better. Dr. No, I, think, Wino, I, th I think that we are doing better. Go ahead, Howard. Dr. Wino just texted me that uh, CU's imaging rate is now up to 47.7%, late breaking news. You know, so Great. the pollsters were wrong at CNN and this is really what the numbers were putting out on. 
That's fantastic. No, I want to take a couple other questions here that we've, we've got a really live chat here. So um, uh, Dr. Chudler mentioned, is there or should there be different music recommendations for types of imaging between ureteroscopy or excuse me, between shockwave and ureteroscopy? I think you bring up a great point. Um, we've gotten a bunch of hypotheses from folks as to why our imaging practices are different between the two. In most cases, I think KUB is a great follow-up study because we're using targeting in the form of fluoroscopy. Um, for, for shockwave lithotripsy, so it's a natural segue afterwards, especially planning for retreatment. But that's kind of where we're thinking here, and we're going to need your help is, could we define a better guideline? Could that specify type of imaging, when the imaging should be done, and in whom we should image? So that's a good point. Um, and then uh, 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 Dr. Altahawi again mentioned, is there a difference in hydronephrosis between stent versus no stent after ureteroscopy? Um, yes, uh, the short answer is yes, and that's something that we can certainly bring to the group as this data matures a bit more. Uh, and then um, finally, uh, Frank Burks had a, a question, is our rate of hydro higher because we're making a concerted effort to look for it? Um, uh, that's an interesting question. Um, uh, to be honest with you, um, Probably, but what we're trying to do here is understand that point because there was so much consternation amongst the group about whether or not we believe the data that's currently out there. Um, and so what I'd say is, you know, again, these are early days, um, stay tuned, but my sense would be, especially based on some stuff that's been recently published, um, Chris, you correct me if I'm wrong, from the Ohio State group, exactly. um, yeah. that, that really shows that that 4% rate, which we hang our hat on, is, is almost certainly an underestimate. They presented somewhere between 10 and 15% of, of asymptomatic obstruction. There you go. And they're in Ohio. So, uh, you know, the enemy, but nevertheless, uh, still found similar data. So I, I think it's a little bit early, like what Casey said, but this is very provocative findings. And I think we have a duty to look into this further as the data builds. And like what Randy said, make more focused guidelines uh, for, for our members. So um, out of, uh, uh, thank you again for everyone that's participated in the, in the chat. I'm going to now introduce Dr. Craig Rogers, who's going to lead us uh, into the talks um, from Kidney, which we really look forward to. So here you go, Dr. Rogers. Thank you, Casey. Hello, everyone. It's my pleasure to give some updates from Music Kidney and to introduce our next speaker, Dr. Amit Patel. Um, with the new year, we have some resolutions, and uh, one of those I hope we can discuss today is documentation of tumor complexity. I can't stress how important it is when we're looking at data from music kidney to be able to tell uh, the complexity of the tumor, to know what we're doing, is it appropriate, how do we compare? Uh, we, we know that's confusing. We tried to simplify nephrometry scoring with a Goldilocks uh, version. Now use whatever works for you, but in this, uh, in the Goldilocks version, which we gave placards to everyone, you just think of the extremes. Think of the small cortical uh, polar tumor compared to the large, hyalur, deep endophytic tumor. So you define your extremes and then it's easier to tell the in-betweens in terms of scoring. So since we introduced this, um, we've seen an increase in documentation from 25% to 61% of patients having docu of, um, of documentation of nephrometry scoring. So we're definitely headed in the right direction. There's still room for improvement. Uh, I wanna put another plug in for chest imaging, um, especially uh, for patients that have tumors over three centimeters. Uh, this is now a VBR metric in music with a goal of over 55% 
of patients with tumors over three centimeters getting chest imaging with CT preferred for tumors greater than five centimeters. And uh, with that, we're seeing more of a flat utilization around 50%, just over 50%, a few peaks up to 60%. And again, our goal is to get to 50%, 55% for our VBR metric. Um, so then I want to introduce um, our next speaker, Dr. Amit Patel, who's gonna be talking about surveillance for renal masses and findings from the music appropriateness panel. You recall our, one of our goals in music kidney is to avoid unnecessary treatment, especially for, um, especially for patients who will not receive benefit or benign disease. Um, Dr. Patel will be talking about the findings today. He did a urologic oncology fellowship with us at Henry Ford. He stayed on staff and now leads our urologic oncology efforts at Henry Ford Wyandotte in the Downriver area. He's made significant contributions to music kidney and uh, including his presentation today. Um, just a little background of how this came about. Um, during earlier in the year, during as COVID cases were surge, surging, I was invited to be part of a panel looking at um, utilization of prostatectomy during the COVID pandemic. And this was led by a group in London with a lot of experience using the Delphi technique to achieve consensus. And I was just amazed at how efficient it was of getting a group together to quickly sort out areas of consensus and non-consensus. And I immediately thought about music and how great this could be for a challenging topic of how to do active surveillance, who should get active surveillance. And Dr. Patel, after speaking with him, he totally ran with this and made it happen. And, and uh, so much work also I wanna acknowledge was done by the coordinating center, by Anna, um, Dr. Lane, and particularly I wanna thank all of the urologists on the active surveillance panel who took time to go through multiple rounds of questionnaires for this. And uh, um, to me, this project is just a testament of, of what music's all about, of, of urologists uh, getting together to reach consensus and improve. So I think you're gonna be really intrigued by the findings and I think it will lead in well to our, um, to our keynote speaker, Dr. Paraiso, and what he has to say as well. So with that, I will turn the time over to Dr. Patel. Thank you. Well, thank you. Um, it's my pleasure to discuss the results from the Surveillance of Renal Mass Appropriateness Panel. Just to recap in music, approximately 50% of suspicious renal masses are observed. And the significant variation across the participating practices ranging from 7 to 72%. Um, rates of observation um, varied across tumor size and approximately 70% were observed measuring less than two centimeters in size, but almost 25% were greater than four centimeters. So we do have to ask ourselves the question is, are these the right patients? So when, when we look at um, how surveillance was intended to be performed, although 98% of um, uh, people intended to repeat imaging within 12 months, there was variation within that 12 months on when it should be performed. Uh, moreover, when we looked at what happened to patients on surveillance, uh, less than 50% got an imaging um, at the planned time point. Uh, and fewer than, uh, fewer than this got chest imaging or renal function assessment. So how can we improve? Well, in the last music meeting, we presented the current urological guidelines that exist, but these are rather non-specific and lack clarity. And thus it's difficult to benchmark how we do as a collaborative. 
To address this, we felt that it was appropriate to move forward with a appropriateness panel via a Delphi um, method. 26 music urologists agreed to participate, most of whom see greater than 20, um, greater than 20 patients per year. Um, and almost three quarters of the participants were practicing the community setting. So the appropriate panel um, worked over three rounds of questions, all done via a virtual platform. Um, where we achieved consensus, um, this was um, deemed to be where 80% of participants agreed um, these would fall out. Um, and ultimately, we were left with um, areas of statements that we could um, agree upon. We focused on the areas of patient selection and initial evaluation, surveillance testing, delayed intervention and graduation. For the purpose of this talk today, we will be focusing on the first three of these. So to start with, we'll be talking about patient selection. Patient factors that achieved consensus, um, which was over 80% agreement amongst our participants. Um, these were age, comorbidity, renal function, and life expectancy. When we asked um, the participants to rank these in orders of importance, life expectancy ranked one, followed by comorbidity, patient preference, age, and renal function. In terms of tumor factors, um, that reach agreement um, for appropriateness for surveillance. These were multifocal, bilateral, heterogeneous, hereditary tumors. Um, symptomatic, infiltrative, and T3A tumors were thought to be inappropriate. Um, if a tumor biopsy had been performed, um, conventional malignant subtypes such as clear cell, chromophobe, papillary type 1 were appropriate, as well as benign histology subtypes. Rarer variants, histology, such as sarcoma, renal medullary collecting duct, were deemed to be inappropriate. Um, with regards to life expectancy, um, we did subcategorize these into um, groups for less than a year, one to five years, six to 10 years, and greater than 10 years. Agreement was achieved for up to 10 years, um, no consensus over 10 years. Um, we also then um, asked whether the specific tumor sizes were appropriate and um, up to three centimeter lesions were deemed to be appropriate. Uh, many of the comments during the first round of questioning were that selected patients for surveillance is rarely based on singular variables, but rather on a combination of factors. Um, size and life expectancy were combined together and participants were asked to rank these com the combination for appropriateness on a scale of one to nine. Based on rank criteria for appropriateness, each of these combinations were determined to either be appropriate, indicated by the green, uncertain as indicated by the gray, or inappropriate as indicated by the red. As you can see, consensus for appropriateness um, across the board was seen for lesions less than three centimeters and patients with a life expectancy less than a year. With the other groups with longer life expectancy, the appropriateness of surveillance reduced with increasing tumor size. We then, then did try to add in other factors such as tumor complexity and perioperative risk. Essentially to summarize this, um, as tumor complexity increased or perioperative um, risk increased, the surveillance, um, the appropriateness of surveillance increased. Similarly, we added in um, renal dysfunction alongside uh, nephron sparing, um, whether the patient's a nephron sparing candidate or non-nephron sparing candidate. And similarly, as renal function declined or the likelihood of nephron sparing um, approach was reduced, the surveillance, the appropriateness of surveillance increased. So just to summarize in terms of patient selection consensus, 
Um, patients with a life expectancy of less than a year are, pro are appropriate for surveillance. Um, all tumors less than three centimeters. Specific tumor characteristics appropriate were bilateral, multifocal, hereditary, or heterogeneous. Infiltrative or T3A were deemed not. Um, if a biopsy had been performed, common subtypes such as uh, clear cell and um, chromophobe and papillary type 1, um, all benign subtypes. If a grade was allocated, um, grades 1 and 2 were uh, appropriate. For those which with a rare uh, renal histology or a grade 4 were deemed to be inappropriate. So then moving on to initial evaluation of the renal mass. Um, it was agreed that the initial evaluation be performed with axial imaging. This could either be with CT or MRI. Safety of CT was deemed to be in those with a GFR of greater than 60 and MRI in those with a GFR of greater than 30. Just speaking to this, um, the American College of Radiology and the National Kidney Foundation issued a consensus statement early 2020 that the risk of contrast-induced nephropathy is extremely low, near 0% for a GFR of 45 and above. Um, and with a GFR of between 30 and 44, um, this is around two to, uh, 0 to 2%. So perhaps there is a perception that the risk of contrast-induced nephropathy is actually higher than what we actually see. Um, and even with the GFRs of between 30 and 44, this can be mitigated with uh, prophylaxis with IV saline hydration. Um, similar group um, produced a consensus statement on the risks of gadolinium-induced nephrogenic systemic fibrosis. And it was deemed that with the use of group two agents, which are highlighted in the red box, um, examples such as Gadavist, which is what we use in our institution, um, deemed that the, uh, the risks of contrast-induced um, uh, NSF was actually very low and the, the benefits of performing an outweigh, out of an MRI outweigh um, the risks of this. So I think the take-home message should be to get to know your radiologists and um, evaluate what kind of contrast agents they are using. Um, with regards to um, chest imaging at initial evaluation, this should be performed for all tumours over three centimetres in size. Um, as the tumor size increases, there may be a preponderance to perform this via a CT rather than a chest X-ray. Um, tumor complexity should be assessed and uh, renal biopsy is not necessary. So how, how did we approach surveillance testing? Well, the initial, um, so during surveillance, um, chest imaging is not required for tumors less than three centimeters but should be considered for tumors greater than five. Um, renal function assessment should be performed annually. The first surveillance scan following initial assessment should be performed with axial imaging with or without contrast. Um, and renal biopsy is not necessary through surveillance. Um, and the, the only time where you may want to consider a biopsy if there was rapid tumor growth and the patient wanting to continue on surveillance. There was no consensus achieved on how, what type of imaging should be done um, on your subsequent second, third, and um, following imaging studies. And that may be an area that we can investigate further. In terms of timing of surveillance imaging, um, the 
first surveillance scan should be performed. Um, we, we did not achieve consensus um, as to a specific time of three, six or 12 months. However, there was consensus if we broaden that to a three to six month period for the first surveillance scan. As the tumor size would increase, um, the preponderance was to favor a, a shorter follow-up of three months. When we move on to the second surveillance scan, um, the, the, the timescale for the second scan would be shifting towards a, a longer period, more to the six to 12 months for tumors up to six centimeters. Um, whereas with the um, tumors greater than six centimeters, we'll be favoring more of a three to six month window. Finally, if we looked at the third surveillance scan, again, for your tumors less than four centimeters in size, we're looking at a 12 month or greater time period um, for the tumors four to seven, um, more to the six to 12 months with a preponderance to six months as the tumor size was increasing. So essentially, how would this look if you were scheduling a follow-up for a T1A lesion? This would be a three to six month initial first scan, a six to 12 month scan for the second, and 12 months for the third. Um, with the larger tumors, the second and third scans would perhaps be on a more frequent basis. So what are the key takeaways from this? Um, we should consider surveillance in all tumors less than three centimeters in size. Um, some larger tumors may be appropriate. Um, this may depend on the patient's life expectancy and comorbidity, such as renal function or the tumor complexity. Um, all patients should be with a life expectancy of less than a year should be considered for surveillance. Some patients with longer life expectancies, as I mentioned, when they have these perioperative risks from or renal dysfunction uh, may be appropriate. Um, in terms of initial evaluation, axial imaging should be performed with or without contrast um, whenever possible at initial evaluation um, and for the first follow-up testing. Um, timing would depend upon tumor size. Um, following the, first, the initial and first scans, um, there is room for us to maybe come up with some um, plans as to whether this may incorporate ultrasound. Um, chest imaging would be necessary for tumors over three centimeters at initial evaluation and should be considered for those with a tumor size less than uh, greater than five centimeters for follow-up testing. Uh, and renal function um, should be assessed um, at regular time points. So where do we see um, us taking this from here? Life expectancy appears to play a pivotal role in decision-making with patients uh, and Dr. Lane is leading a um, leading within music and creating a life expectancy calculator for patients with a renal mass. We do need to benchmark the areas of consensus of what we are against what we are doing in practice across Michigan. Um, and we feel there is a role for development of an active surveillance uh, roadmap, especially in how we select and survey our patients. And perhaps we can lead the way in achieving consensus um, um, outside of Michigan as well. On that note, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Dr. Phil Perazio, Associate Professor of Urology and Oncology at the Brady Urological Institute at John Hopkins University. He runs the Delayed Intervention Surveillance for Renal Masses Disarm Registry, uh, one of the largest active surveillance registries for patients with small renal tumors. 
He's going to share his thoughts on the current trends of active surveillance across the United States uh, and how um, within DISARM they perform surveillance and um, you know what triggers they consider for delayed intervention. Um, so I'm now hand it over to uh, Dr. Petrozio. Thank you, Ahmed. It's my absolute pleasure to be with you this evening to talk uh, with the music group and about kidney cancer and small renal masses. So just by way of disclosure, I have no relevant financial disclosures. I do sit on the AUA and NCC and guidelines committees for kidney cancer. And I do have a, uh, an up-to-date chapter on small renal masses. So I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on biology. Everyone in this meeting is an expert on kidney cancer and kidney masses, but I showed these data just to make a couple of important points. One, to plug Alice Emergent, who did tremendous work for us while she was a fellow at Hopkins and is now uh, with your group. But really just to make the point that we know for masses less than four centimeters, 20 to 40% of those masses are benign and 80 to 90% of those masses are either low or of very low malignant potential when you consider that they are low grade, low stage tumors that are confined to the kidney. Along those lines, it's really hard to parse out any differences in cancer specific survival for small renal masses, uh, whether they undergo surgery, extirpative surgery, ablation, or active surveillance, basically based on the excellent oncologic outcomes for all of those patients. So as many people in the room know, active surveillance is becoming a much more common management strategy for patients with these small kidney tumors. Rightfully so, we see the utilization of radical nephrectomy decreasing in SEER over the last uh, 10 to 15 years. We see slight upticks in rates of non-surgical management, which is not exactly akin to active surveillance, but we use a surrogate in this data set. I wanna show you guys, I think you'd be really interested in this, some surgeon level variation for small renal masses. So if you look at just those T1A tumors from 2004 to 2013, you'll see about 13,000 patients with newly diagnosed small renal masses and about 3,000 individual urologists who saw each of those patients. So just to kind of categorize our overall numbers, you see that each urologist saw an average about 11 patients with a small, small renal mass. Interestingly, 60% of those urologists only offered active treatment and never offered non-surgical management to their patients. If you delve into the variation, what you see is that there's a wide level of variation. It means about 13% of um, patients were offered non-surgical management but you see variation anywhere from 5 to 40% based on the predictive models. You'll see variation actually among all the management strategies. So it's not just in non-surgical management, but you see pretty wide variation for partial nephrectomy, radical nephrectomy, as well as thermal ablation. And importantly, when you really delve into the data and you look at known predictors of what we should be doing or how we should be managing patients like age, life expectancy, and tumor size, things that presented themselves in Amit's data and Amit's presentation, Importantly, what you see is when you stratify by those variables, the greatest predictor in the choice of management was actually the individual urologist. It was not age or life expectancy or tumor size, but it was by the first person that they saw. So I think you guys are doing really important uh, work with your music data here. So that brings us to our registry. So DISARM stands for Delayed Intervention and Surveillance for Small Renal Masses. This open enrollment registry has been open now for 12 years. Started January 1st, 2009, is for adult patients with solid renal masses, no cysts, no indeterminate masses. They have to be solid. And you see, after they choose surveillance or intervention, they're offered enrollment into this prospective registry. Intervention patients are followed for standard uh, care. 
where our surveillance patients are monitored every six months for two years and annually thereafter with triggers for intervention, including growth rate and tumor size. Currently, we have uh, just on actually just under 1,000 patients are currently enrolled in the program. This data was censored about a year ago. We have over 500 patients in active surveillance. Median follow-up now over three years, but you can see over 300 patients have been followed for five years or more. Here's some of the baseline data. As you would expect, the active surveillance patients are older. They are more comorbid by a number of measurements, and in general, they have slightly smaller tumors. If you look at the overall survival, it really reflects those differences in comorbidities. So you see that the primary intervention group has a much better overall survival at 10 years than does the active surveillance cohort. Most importantly, cancer-specific survival is almost identical. Two patients in the primary intervention arm, one patient in the active surveillance arm have died of kidney cancer, really indicating that we're selecting our patients well. So some of the big questions that uh, Ahmed had and, and wanted me to present was, how do we follow our patients? So I told you we recommend imaging every six months for the first two years annually thereafter. We do mandate axial imaging either at enrollment or within six months if an ultrasound or some other form of imaging demonstrated a solid renal mass. We no longer require annual chest imaging, which I will show you. And we do get a complete metabolic panel annually really just to assess renal function. And obviously if there's a, a perineoplastic syndrome, which would be incredibly rare, we've never seen one in 12 years. Ultrasound has become our preferred surveillance modality. Although we tell everybody that our strategy is really highly individualized, but we rely on ultrasound and you can see these are our initial imaging studies versus our follow-up. We basically alternate ultrasound and axial imaging in patients who are good surgical candidates and someone who is older and less likely to go to the operating room we may be following them with ultrasound alone. And we do tell patients too that we can have variable time intervals. While the protocol says every six months or two years, we understand that not all patients are accepting of a six month time interval. Biologically, we think that's very sound and reasonable, but we will change our time intervals based on patient characteristics and preferences. Here's some of the brief chest uh, imaging data. And I'll basically just show you that if you look at baseline chest imaging and follow-up imaging, you will find quite a few actionable findings in this population. Remember, in general, they're elderly, they have other comorbidities. So you're gonna find pulmonary nodules, mediastinal menses, thyroid nodules, and other benign pulmonary lesions. And what you find is none of it affects their kidney cancer follow-up or their kidney mass follow-up. So we now only use chest imaging for cause. These are, this is somebody who had an abnormal uh, chest image at baseline. Uh, this is patients who have growing small renal masses that cross size thresholds or those who electively choose to cross over and go to the operating room. Obviously, we want to restage them specifically if they have cancer. Here's some of our growth data. And what you see, the median growth rate is about a millimeter per year in our program. And here's the waterfall plot, basically showing that about 20% of patients will have quote-unquote shrinking tumors. Over the course of follow-up, 10 to 15% demonstrate zero growth. The vast majority of patients will have slowly growing small renal masses. And about 20% of them will demonstrate a growth rate of half a centimeter a year or more. Importantly, we've shown this a number of years ago that most of that elevated growth rate happens within the first year where you'll also see the greatest variability in growth measurements. We really believe that this is due to variation in measurement and mathematical artifact. And I'll show you just a quick exercise here. So if you take uh, a three centimeter tumor, if you measure that in the same day with a different radiologist or different technique, you may do it paramedian or you may do it tangentially, and you may get a very small difference in measurement. 
Now you take those small differences in measurement and you compound them over months rather than years, and you can overestimate growth rate, which is why we think we have high elevated growth rates within the first year. So what do we do when we see that? We try to reassure patients, avoid intervention, consider another image and potential renal mass biopsy if we truly think they're growing. One of the other really interesting points to bring up is when we started the program 12 years ago, our definitions of progression were increased tumor size, really greater than four centimeters and elevated growth rate, development of hematuria or other symptoms or elective crossover. And what you see over the course of years, that about 40% of patients experience a progression event. What are those progression events? Well, what you see is about 60% of those progression events are actually crossover to surgery, but only about a third of those progression events are based on elevated growth rates. And half of the patients who have an elevated growth rate decide they don't want surgery anyway, and we continue to follow them. Importantly, if you look, half of the crossovers are simply elective or patient preference, and only one patient has died of metastatic disease who did not have an elevated growth rate. So we're not the only people who've shown this. This is Baba Uzo's data and the data from Fox Chase. You see very similar waterfall plots. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on it, but what I want to show you is that delayed intervention is more common with elevated growth rates. And what you see is over time, the faster a tumor grew, the more likely those patients were to go to the operating room. But importantly, very similar data to ours, only one patient died of kidney cancer, showing really that growth rate predicts intervention, but minimally impacts oncologic outcomes. Here's our data on delayed intervention. Red curve is patients going to the operating room in a delayed fashion. Uh, the blue is patients remaining on surveillance. And what you see is higher growth rates in those going to the operating room, but you still see about 50% of patients going to the operating room preference, no change in rates of nephron sparing, no change in uh, in renal cell cancer diagnoses, high-grade disease, or upstaging, leading us to conclude that delayed intervention is safe and we're not compromising stage oncologic outcomes or our nephron sparing window. Just to show you two more pieces of data before I sum up here, here is our intervention-free survival based on tumor size. And what you see is even for tumors that start above three centimeters, they will grow slowly. And about 70% of those patients will remain on surveillance three years later. They certainly have a higher rate of crossover. And here's data we just published on younger patients quote unquote, younger patients, 60 years or younger. And what you see is this really shows that active surveillance remains a safe initial strategy in those younger patients. It can avoid uh, unnecessary intervention. And even though the crossover rate is higher for larger tumors in younger patients, you'll still see about 60 to 70% of those patients remaining on surveillance four, five, six years after enrollment. So I'll summarize here briefly. Our current understanding of tumor biology makes surveillance a rational option for many patients with small renal masses based on patient and tumor characteristics. Early statistics demonstrate non-inferiority to primary intervention. Our growth rates predict intervention, but not biology, and therefore we need to rethink what progression means. And lastly, our current guidelines support the use of surveillance in patients with small renal masses less than two centimeters and up to four centimeters in patients with competing risks. I'm really looking forward to the discussion, the Q&A, and if you have any data, I did this really quickly. If you want to see more data, I'm happy to discuss and give you more answers. Thanks again for having me. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Amit, for your remarks today. And um, uh, also thank you for joining our Q&A panel today. I also want to thank Jay Lonsway, who's with us, as well as Brian Lane, even 
even from his hospital bed, Brian, thank you for your dedication to music and support and uh, even brought your mascot with you, uh, the kidney mascot. Uh, really, uh, honestly, we're, I want to echo um, the comments earlier that we're all behind you, Brian, and, and thinking of you and, and uh, just admire your dedication to music and your support to us and we support you uh, through this. Um, I'm going to kick off some questions for all of the panelists. Dr. Lonsway, I was going to start with you. Um, so after uh, participating in this consensus panel on active surveillance, um, did it cause you to change your attitudes or practice towards active surveillance? Just curious how it affected you. Uh, I would say that it was, uh, it was actually, it was very good with regards to coming up with um, at least clarifying, you know, what is going to be a good way of uh, following those patients and exactly uh, how often to do the, uh, the follow-up studies. Uh, I think there's always a little bit of um, difficulty with deciding exactly when to do follow-up studies. So I did find it very interesting to, to have that discussion and to go through the panel. Okay. So did seeing what other people were doing, did that surprise you to see that something would reach consensus or would not reach consensus? Was that eye-opening in any way to say, oh, maybe I should do this differently? Uh, I think that it, it was, I think that there's just so much variability out there that I do think that it was nice to have a, a good consensus among urologists. But I do think that there is... Um, at least I think a growing understanding that we can do surveillance for kidney masses. Um, I had actually done a, a lecture with uh, Philip, maybe it was like a couple years ago in Aspen. And I do think that it was uh, uh, very interesting that he had started to present some of that data even back then. So I do think it's becoming more acceptable. Uh, whereas uh, when I was going to residency say 20 years ago, uh, pretty much everybody was getting, you know, nephrectomies, and now it's uh, less common. Okay. Um, Brian, I'm going to ask the same question of you. I mean, like Phil, you've been on guidelines panels for kidney cancer, and you've been doing this for so long. That having, But this active surveillance consensus panel, did it cause you to get a different perspective on active surveillance and what we should be, what you would want to be doing or what we should be doing in music? I don't know if Brian, if you heard me. I have, I'm sorry, I have some delay because I have both things open, but yeah, I hear you, Craig. Okay. Yeah, I was really surprised by the um, responses on the panel. I think, A, I was really encouraged that the, the urologists and music are doing more surveillance uh, and I think that's truer to the real world scenario where there's a lot of indeterminate lesions, a lot of cystic lesions, and a lot of patients with um, medical comorbidities. It's just clear that not every person is a surgical person. Uh, Phil, I wanted to ask you a question as well. A lot of your data presented today is more focused on the T1A tumors. Um, what about bigger tumors, T1B? Is there a role uh, for active surveillance? What would you say about that in your own experience in pushing the limits to bigger tumors? 
Yeah, I think there is, Craig, and, and it's a great question. I think this is going to be the next forefront in kind of surveillance. I think a lot of what we've been doing over the last decade is showing that small renal masses and T1A lesions are, are really safe to watch. But where does that line draw? When does it become unsafe? I think a lot of it has to do with patient characteristics and patient comorbidities. I think none of us would argue that it's a problem to watch a six centimeter mass in a 90-year-old. Uh, and on the flip side, a lot of us would say it's really not safe to do that in a 40-year-old. And the risk really comes down to what's the risk of metastatic progression? What's the advance of, of metastatic disease? And those rates are actually remarkably low for four, five, six centimeter tumors. Once you start getting in the six, seven, eight centimeter range and crossing over to T2, you're starting to look at 30, 40% risks of you know, T3, pathologically you know, T3 tumors and much higher risks of metastatic progression. But drawing that line is hard. And I think the other problem is where do we draw the line, the trigger for intervention if you start watching a five centimeter mass? Are we gonna wait till it hits seven centimeters and really crosses over to a T2 lesion? Are we gonna you know, wait for it to develop a tumor thrombus before we consider you know, surgery? So I think that's gonna be the next frontier is where do we start with the bigger masses and then where do we finish? What are the real triggers for intervention? So hopefully the answer is gonna be coming in some of our molecular data, but we're not there yet. Can I, can I comment on that? Right. So Phil and Uzo showed some great slides about this, about you know, a patient who progressed and then got the thrombus and you keep observing. I remember I had a patient um, maybe eight, 10 years ago with metastatic disease. They thought he had a stage four thrombus, um, downsized him with Sutan or Prozopinib and actually found out he had a left-sided renal cell with a level two thrombus and an adrenal metastasis with the thrombus that was going up into the atrium that then pulled into the infrahepatic. So he was actually, you know, restaged, recategorized. And I, of course, at that point was like, sweet, let's go get this out surgically, but they elected for no surgery. Um, and I think that patient is still, is probably still alive as far as I know, a good eight years. So I, I think, you know, our concepts of why surgery is imminent um, are not necessarily accurate. And I think all of the cytoreductive nephrectomy trials, all the metastatic disease trials, I have a patient currently with a unresectable uh, solitary kidney mass and a thrombus, and we don't want to put her on dialysis. So we're just you know, using systemic therapy. So I think this is, uh, again, not just a question of active surveillance for surgery, um, but active surveillance for uh, transition to some other non-surgical forms of treatment. Amit wanted to ask you a question as well. So having done this pretty rigorous analysis here, um, just your own comments on how it went for you, like what things you're, that you feel went well from this and what things in retrospect do you wish we would have maybe reached consensus on or that we didn't hit the mark with this assessment? Yeah, no, I, th I think the whole process was um, character building. I think, you know, for some of the participants, some of the questions, especially going into those grids, were really quite soul destroying because, you know, there were so many options to pick from. And, you know, often they sometimes merged into one. 
But, you know, really, you know, when as we built the questionnaire into the first, second and third rounds, we were really trying to get into the meat of how complex a decision making process it is. You know, looking at these as singular factors of age, life expectancy, comorbidity isn't really probably fair enough. And you're always adding in those factors of renal function, tumor complexity, you know, what their perioperative risk is like. Um, and really, you know, I think it speaks to the fact that, you know, these aren't really simple decisions, especially for patients. And you're trying to make that, um, trying to explain that to a patient in a coherent fashion is probably what made the process of trying to build these questions um, quite difficult. But, you know, I, I think where we, where we, where I wish we had maybe had some more consensus is really trying to build on how to, to do follow-up. And it speaks to Dr. Lonsway's point about really, you know, how can we, you know, how can we reach conformity across our collaborative about the best way to do that? I think we were sort of getting there. You know, we were almost there. We almost reached about 60, 70%. We didn't quite get to the 80%. But I, I really think that that's probably where, you know, we can also maybe lead the way in terms of trying to come up with a, a protocol about how to best survey patients. And you know, some of the interesting parts that came out of it, and especially the um, the, the slides I, I presented on the um, what the American Association of Radiology put out with regards to renal function and you know the safety of CT and MRI. I, I really think that sometimes we we have a perceived risk of what these agents do against what the actual risk is, and that, you know I, I think it was a good opportunity to try and show what the uh, what the guidelines actually tell us on that. Hey Jay. Can I uh, ask you as a representative urologist, how much prescription, proscription would you like to see from music versus provider discretion? How would you feel if we said you must get a renal ultrasound at six months or something like that, and then you may get any imaging test you like at 12 months? I think that uh, overall, I like the, the may uh, and the overall suggestion. Um, the, the biggest problem that I have is it just feels as though that every every person is an individual person. And so um, when they're coming in, especially when they're starting to talk about doing surveillance, I think there's so many different factors that, that take into place of, well, especially coming from the Upper Peninsula where people could be driving, say, like a couple hours to come in and see me. And then, you know, they have problems, difficulties getting to their own hospital and, and all of that. Um, so I do think that um, I think that it's much better to do suggestions as opposed to prescription of, you know, well, you must do this or that. So before we close, uh, we're going to go over about like 30 seconds. Phil, I want to do a parting question for you, especially being involved with the NCCN guidelines. This is a question from the chat. It says the plan 2021 NCCN guidelines still state partial nephrectomy is, quote unquote, preferred for T1A. Is this too aggressive? So maybe, uh, uh, I don't know if you're allowed to uh, say anything against your uh, own guidelines, but uh, yeah, what, no, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm not going to speak out of school and give the backroom chatter here, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I think while I have a strong preference that surveillance is equivalent in the setting, I think we have to be honest with what our data shows. And, you know, the, for, for better or worse and all the biases involved, Partial nephrectomy has the strongest outcomes, in my opinion, for the T1A tumor. Uh, and, and obviously, the others are very reasonable options for, for a number of patients for different reasons. All right. Well, thank you. I want to thank all our, our panelists uh, for participating today. 
And uh, it's my pleasure now to um, introduce uh, Dr. Jim Grant, who's the new Chief Medical Officer and Senior Vice President of Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan. Uh, just briefly, Dr. Grant is an anesthesiologist. Uh, he was department chair at Beaumont uh, in anesthesiology and then department chair at Cedars-Sinai in LA and then returned to Michigan. Uh, many impressive leadership positions, including president of the Michigan Society of Anesthesiologists, the American Society of Anesthesiologists, uh, and with that, I will uh, turn the time over to Dr. Grant. Thank you. Well, thank you for the very kind introduction. Um, I'm excited to be here with you today, although it's virtual. Um, I'm Jim Grant. I'm the new Chief Medical Officer of Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan. I took over for Tom Simmer officially on January 1st. Um, no one can ever take over for Tom. Those are big shoes to fill. Tom is, you know, the, the, the father of the CQIs and the, you know, a one-of-a-kind chief medical officer. And we owe him a, a debt of gratitude for the tremendous work he did for all of Michigan for so many years. Um, by nature, my background is I'm an anesthesiologist. My plan is to continue to practice at least a couple days a month because truly I believe to understand what the issues are, you gotta be in the trenches and to walk the walk and talk the talk. Uh, so I'm an anesthesiologist, like I said, in 2018, I was actually the president of the American Society of Anesthesiologists. 2014, I'm a Michiganian. I was the uh, president of the Michigan State Medical Society. My background is I grew up in southeastern Michigan, went to medical school at Wayne State, did my residency in Chicago at Northwestern, then came back to Michigan to practice uh, at Beaumont and Royal Oak for 28 years. The last 13 of them, I was the chair of the department. Um, also at the same time, or at the same time after that, um, I left Beaumont and uh, went to Cal Southern California. And I was the chair of the department for a little less than two years and the head of the perioperative service line at Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. Uh, the one thing I will be able to tell you is I know operating rooms, I know procedures, and I know proceduralists. And it's, it's a, a world that's familiar to me, and I'm excited to be able to work with you. I have heard nothing, nothing but amazing things about music and the whole urology collaborative, and I'm really excited to work with you. I want you to know my style is pretty open. Never hesitate to reach out for anything you need. I will share with you that the collaboratives, the CQIs, music, you have my 100% total support to continue doing the great work that you're doing. Um, everyone's told me, you know, when we talk about the collaboratives, you know, music is one of the top ones that comes up. When I was leaving Los Angeles to come here, you know, I had urologists talk to me about the great work that music is doing and just rest assured that I support the work you're doing and I'm excited about even taking it to the next level. So thanks for the introduction. I'm excited about the day that we can all meet together real time. I plan to be an integral part of what you need to be successful and I look forward to meeting all of you one day. Thank you, Dr. Grant. And once again, we are all very uh, thankful for the support uh, that Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan has had in developing and sustaining the collaborative. I'd like to now just say some closing remarks. Today, uh, we summarized about the uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield Michigan value-based reimbursement and Music urologists should know that we have an opportunity to earn additional 5% on payments uh, based on the uh, quality measures around salvage radiation, imaging after ureteroscopy, uh, active surveillance follow-up, ED visits after ureteroscopy, and chest imaging for small renal mass. Uh, 
The prostate team uh, presented data on confirmatory testing for fable risk prostate cancer patients and found that it improves risk stratification and identifies occult high-risk disease. MRI is better at identifying early Gleason reclassification, and MRI and genomics both identify patients at higher risk for transitioning to treatment or adverse pathology at radical prostatectomy. The ROCS team presented the data on imaging after urethroscopy, and this is an important area and a quality gap, both nationally and in this state. And what we learned today, how important it is for imaging to understand our patient outcomes, to detect residual stones, and especially to identify post-operative hydronephrosis. From the kidney team, we learned about new music guidelines for patients with small renal mass, about patient selection, initial evaluation, and imaging surveillance. Over the next few months, we look forward to continued progress and getting back to you all regarding our QI portfolio and on these and other initiatives. Uh, so, and also stay tuned for updates on our plans for the June and October collaborative-wide meetings. Uh, at the end of this meeting in particular, you can uh, please stay around. We have a couple of breakout rooms where you can ask uh, the different speakers and participants and, and questions or just say hello. Uh, so, and the way to do this is on the left-hand side of the screen, you should see a, 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 an option for sessions. And if you click on sessions, you can then see multiple breakout rooms at the end of this uh, meeting where you can then enter and, and hang out with people. So we look forward to networking at the end. Just one more thing about these webinars and the content that we've been creating recently. They are all available on our music website. And now uh, our content is also available as podcasts to listen, especially on the Apple podcast uh, store. And the directions for that are provided here on this slide. And we'll be sending out more communications around this to, to better uh, disseminate uh, some of the content that we've been created over the last year. In terms of more webinar, next week we hold an exciting nationwide music webinar on decision-making and urethroscopy, uh, and we're really excited to have three uh, guest speakers, Dr. Borowski, Dr. Shah, and Dr. Pearl, along with many other music surgeons speaking to us about uh, technical skills for urethroscopy, including use of access sheets, stents, and different uh, strategies in the operating room. So we look forward to that webinar and hope you can join us next Wednesday at 6 p.m. I'd like to thank you all for your attention, for being a part of the collaborative and for your ongoing commitment to making Michigan number one in urologic care. Thank you and look forward to seeing you soon in the breakout rooms. Bye-bye.